Good morning, church. We're going to be in Job 36 today. I'm grateful to be with a body of Christ who sees God's Word as inspired by Him, and that we could turn to any of the thousands of chapters in the Bible and preach for them today. We've gone through probably thousands of them here as a church body. Uh, but today we're going to be in a, a particular chapter of the Bible that I hope will be the medicine that our, that our souls need for today, as we've been talking about suffering, as um, John Piper has, has said that we all have, he calls them dung piles, um, because he's a pastor and uses a good Christian word. Uh, we have these dung piles in our lives, and we have to camp out at them occasionally, you don't want to camp there very long, though. But you've got to go there and visit them occasionally and deal with them. Uh, but they're in each and every one of our lives. So today we'll be, especially in uh, Job 36, dealing with Elihu's continued speech. Uh, I believe that Elihu's message today is, is really kind of the conclusion of his message. Uh, it's the height of his message. It's where he gives us the most clear and direct answers on suffering. Uh, and so today we're going to be in chapter 36. We're just going to cover through verse 23. But starting in verse 24 and through chapter 37, Elihu gives his official conclusion to his speech. It's really simply an introduction to the Lord's speech. The rest of Elihu's speech after today, which we'll cover another time, um, is essentially the same message that the Lord has in the four chapters that the Lord has, starting in 38, that God is great and we are not, and so we submit to him. But Elihu's speech today is very concentrated. It's a, it's a kind of a, a heavy message. Um, and so the title of today's message is God's purpose in suffering is to draw you closer to himself and to keep you there. That's a great phrase to just keep close to our hearts, summarizing Job 36 and Elihu's focused message. The title of the ESV calls it Elihu exalts, extols God's greatness. That's a good title <clears throat> starting in chapter and starting in verse 24. Uh, but for the first half of it, uh, a better title is, that, is to see God's just purposes <clears throat> in human affliction. I want to start today by reminding us of God's purpose in grief. And that there are stages and processes that we go through in grief. Uh, when we go through suffering, it's not just one or two aspects of it. Um, here we're kind of at the conclusion of it, uh, where of Job's trial and, and his grief process. But there's some general observations we can make for stages in grief and dealing with pain and with suffering. We can see some of that in Job's life and in the story of Job. First, he had a, a reaction that we will often have as well is kind of one of shock. A lot of times that deals with, with silence or just a few words. Job started out well and he ended well in this story. But in the middle, he, had, you know, he went through this process of grief. Uh, but in the beginning, there, there was some silence. There was a whole week where he was silent after he spoke a few words. He then starts to take some action, expresses his emotion through anger, occasional feelings of hopelessness and wanting to give in and just give up. Um, we can see sometimes somebody lashing out at others, projecting, projecting their own hurt on others. Um, 
We can sometimes dig into self-destructive habits because we don't want to deal with the pain. We can then start to turn a corner and to admit we're going through this suffering. We're amazed, wow, this is happening to me. Never would have expected that. And you acknowledge that. And that's a good place to start whenever you're talking with somebody who's going through some suffering and some pain. Acknowledge that with them. That's one of the first things that we can do. We'll start to actively, though, ask some questions, as we see Job did in the middle. And then we can start to have some conflicting emotions. We can start to see a little bit of gratitude. But at the same time, we mourn and we're sad over that suffering and that loss. Maybe then we're going to also have some more time of silence. You've dealt with it for a little while, and you just need more time. I have in my notes the word time capitalized, bolded, and circled. It takes time to process that grief. Different traumatic events or different sufferings, different pains are going to take different amounts of time. We're going to then hopefully move to digging in and seeing God's purpose in our life and in this particular form of suffering that we're going through. This is what we find, I believe, in Job 36. What is God's purpose in my suffering and even in our life? We see that at the conclusion of Joseph's life. Uh, In Genesis 50, verse 20, what others meant for evil, God meant for good. We start to see that purpose. Hopefully, eventually, we can then invest in others, tell them our story. But you can't do that too quickly. That involves a testimony. And so today's message is... It's kind of hard to hear. You could summarize it by simply saying that suffering is good for you. That's not something that sounds always encouraging, does it? Suffering's good for you. And so I encourage you not to bring that message to somebody who's suffering in the beginning. We went over Romans 8.28 last week, knowing that God works good. All things work for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That that good is for you to be drawn closer to God your sanctification in him. But in the beginning, somebody just wants you to be there, to be there through their suffering. I mean, imagine Joseph in the Old Testament being sold into slavery, and in the first couple weeks, you put your arm around him and say, come on, Joseph, suffering's good for you. He wouldn't take that very well, would he? But we have to start with an acknowledgement of that pain of that suffering. And it is helpful to have some some framework ahead of time, but it's not always best to jump to Genesis 3 and explain to everybody, well, pain is part of life for men and for women. I mean, they want you to be there with them, right? You don't need to dissect it and explain, well, you're not cursed. You see, Satan was cursed and the earth was cursed. It's going to burn up. There's no redemption for the earth. There's no redemption for Satan. The earth's going to burn up. Satan has no chance to repent. But mankind isn't cursed until you go through the second death, right? You can still proclaim the gospel without going through a lot of those details. But today we're going to explain what that, or Elihu is going to explain to us what that purpose is in suffering. And it is good to go into a trial knowing that. It is good to know that. But in the beginning, we just need to go through those stages of grief with people. Let's pray that God would help us to do that. God, only you 
can reveal your purpose to us. We see that in the thousands of chapters in your word. Today, Lord, we're in Job 36, and I pray that you help us to hold close to you through our sufferings, through the pain that each and every one of us goes through in life. Help us to trust you that you want us to go through pain as part of life, and that is your design to draw us closer to you. Help us by faith to see that you are good and that you are in charge. In your name we pray. Amen. So let's go through Job chapter 36. We'll read through a couple verses and then we'll strive to explain it and understand it. First, we come to verses 1 through 4. And we see here that Elihu is the prophetic voice in the story of Job. I don't believe he's just a fourth friend. I believe he's kind of like the pastoral figure. Now, a pastor is going to deliver God's word. He's not going to reveal God's word. But a prophet is going to reveal God's word. Elihu, I call the prophetic voice. You could call him the pastoral figure relating to Job. But he's revealing God's word to us. And Elihu says as much. Listen to verses 1 through 4. Follow along with me. And Elihu continued and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you. For I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. He's going to give us more. He's going to give us a clearer understanding of suffering. And it comes from God. He's going to show us. It's on God's behalf as if God is talking to us. Where does he get his knowledge? He gets it from afar. He gets it from God as we get it from his word. We have more knowledge than anybody who would ever teach us because we know God. And he ascribes it correctly. Who is God? He is righteous. He is the maker. Which God do you worship? I worship the God who created the heavens and the earth. His way is right. Whatever he does is right just because he does it. And it's not arbitrary. He does it for his own glory and for our good. You could stop right there and trust him. But it's great that we have more answers here in Job 36. One of the basics of understanding comes through contrast and comparison. Verse 4 contrasts Job with Elihu. My words are not false, Elihu says. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. This perfection is not the perfection in the sense of sinlessness, but one who is right in his speaking of God's truth. Compared to who? Compared to Job, who uttered a lot of things he should not have said for chapters and chapters, weeks and weeks, probably months and months. How does the previous chapter conclude? Job 35, 16, we went through it last week. Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. Proverbs 10.19 says, Where there are many words, sin is not absent. Ephesians tells us, In your anger, don't sin. How is Job sinning? He's opening his mouth in anger. What does James tell us about opening your mouth in anger? You set the whole world on fire with the tongue. We need to be careful not to open our mouths when we're angry. I think we've all made that mistake, haven't we? Spoken in anger. Let's again have a little bit of compassion on Job because we're sinners just like him. The man has gone through essentially the worst kind of suffering any human being can go through. 
and that is losing his own children. It's one thing for children to lose their parents. It's natural in the sense of expected, right? Even though death is unnatural. But when a parent loses a child, that is one of the most difficult things to deal with. Nonetheless, in his weakness, Job's weakness, he did sin. He'll admit that later. He'll say, I'll stop talking, right? So in our proclivity towards weakness, which we all have, then it can turn into sin by our own choices, our own sinful nature. This is what we repent from and what we renew our minds in regularly is how to die to our flesh. Then we come to verses 5 through 7. I would summarize this by saying, God is an active judge. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne and sets them forever, and they are exalted. God is indeed active. He is mighty. He is on his throne, and he is in charge of this world. In verses 6 and 7, we see this popular contrast between the wicked and the righteous. Listen to Psalm 12, sorry, Psalm 112. And you see this portrayed throughout all the Psalms. I've just kind of almost picked a random one. And there's a contrast between the wicked and the righteous. Starts out in Psalm 112 saying, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, reminding us of the contrast that's set up in Psalm 1. The man who seeks God and the man who doesn't. The man who would be warned not to walk the road with the wicked. Blessed, though, is the man who fears the Lord. Just picking out a couple different verses in Psalm 112. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous because he's experiencing that. The righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. By contrast, it concludes by saying, the wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desires of the wicked will perish. This gnashing of the teeth in the scripture represents those who are lost. In Revelation, we see this as those who are in hell. We come back to Job 36. And so we see that God is active in judging the wicked and giving favor on the righteous and those who are afflicted and who are innocent. But what does it mean that he doesn't keep the wicked alive? Do we take that at face value as a literal interpretation? Well, in that case, we'd all be dead, right? As soon as you're wicked, then you die. Well, it can't be in that. I'm still alive, right? Adam and Eve didn't die a physical death immediately. They eventually died. They did die a spiritual death. Well, what does this mean? He does not keep the wicked alive. Well, certainly I think it means that they're not going to live in eternity in heaven. When they experience the second death, they are dead forever, away from the presence of God in hell. He will not keep the wicked alive forever. But I see two themes here. I see wickedness, and I see life being shortened. Where else in the Bible do we see that? We see that, first of all, in Genesis 6. Because of man's wickedness, God shortens the life of everybody. We're all wicked, right? And it says in Genesis 6 that he shortens life from, what, a maximum of like 960 or 80 years for Methuselah to now they're 120. How long did Moses live? 120 years. I mentioned last week, Moses commented in Psalm 9 that he's kind of shortened a little bit to be averaged to 70 or 80, it says. And then he says those years are going to be trouble and trials. And he says, I'm paraphrasing, they're going to go by like a blink of an eye. But God does shorten life. He is in charge of this world. He will not contend with wickedness forever. 
But by contrast, his eyes are on us. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. Of course, our righteousness that we have is in Christ. He has given us his righteousness, and he enables us to walk in righteousness. And so God will have sort of some pre-judgment on this earth. Yes, there will be a judgment day. But he is actively involved in this world. I mean, Job doesn't see that as much as we do, do we? We see the beginning of Job. We see the end of it. We see Job's journey of spiritual warfare. That God is very involved. Job, you want to judge? You want to see if God's involved? He's very involved in your story, Job. In fact, it's one of the oldest stories in the Bible. Maybe Moses is even the author of it and writes it down for us. Job, your story will be told for a long time. God is watching. He is actively involved in our lives. And you look at the whole story of Job, and it's obvious that that's the case. When you read especially the introduction with the setting of the stage, with the spiritual warfare, with the conclusion of God talking specifically to Job, as God's talking to us today in Job 36. God is active. He is watching. We come to the next verses in verses 8 through 12. We see that suffering turns us aside from sin. Verse 8 says, And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. Die without knowledge, they perish by the sword. Think of Balaam in Numbers, this false prophet, this diviner who was a wolf in sheep's clothing for a while, he ended up dying by the sword. He did not respond well to God's interactions with him in his life. But the, the pattern here, it's, it's pretty clear. If you're caught, caught in the cords of affliction, which we all are caught in pain and suffering, it's a result of the fall. And in that affliction, in that suffering, then he declares to us that we are sinners. God uses our suffering to bring us close to him, whether it's for salvation initially or to continue to draw us close to him. Now, you need to combine that with God's word. It's not just circumstances that draw you to God. He uses those circumstances, but he's also going to use his word to proclaim most clearly that we are sinners. Yes, I believe that the, the Ten Commandments, the law of God is written in our DNA. But it's a little bit foggy as to how bad of a sinner we are until we see God's word and what are the commands of God. But God will open our ears to instruction. It's so strong. He will command that we return from iniquity, being brought from not just the kingdom of darkness to light, but the scripture also says from death to life. God is the one who opens our ears as we pray and as we see in, throughout the scriptures in Revelation 2 and 3, open my ears that I might hear. He who has ears to hear, he who has eyes to see. God is the one that enables that. That's because of the iniquity that we go through. <clears throat> Sorry, the suffering that we go through. And if we listen and serve him, not just believe, but then have works that, that, as James would say, prove our salvation, says things will go well for us. Live your years in pleasantness. Think of a peace that surpasses understanding that we see in Philippians 4. But if we do not listen, we will perish. And that perishing isn't just talking about the first death. It's talking about the second death, that judgment day, whether you go to heaven or you go to hell. This principle of suffering... Turning us away from sin is spelled out very clearly in 1 Peter 4. You can listen there or turn there. 1 Peter 4, the first two verses. 
He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, the same attitude. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The NIV says, he who has suffered, everybody who suffered is done with sin. Then we will live the rest of our lives, the rest of our time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The ceasing from sin doesn't mean we don't sin at all, but it means it's not the habit of our life. It means it has held us fast. It's been a wake-up call in our lives. And it's not just a principle that's wise. It's following the person of Jesus Christ who set the stage, who set the example, the master example for suffering. Who for the joy set before him, Hebrews 12 tells us, endured the cross, scorning its shame. And it says we should have that same attitude. As we talked about Jesus setting his face like a flint towards Jerusalem, we are determined to follow him, to die to our own flesh, to do whatever it takes to be a disciple of Christ and to make a difference in the lives that God has put in my life. He says, arm yourselves with that same way of thinking. That's the same word you get from Philippians 2. What attitude should you have is that of humility, considering others better than yourselves. And when you arrive there, and you re-arrive there, it helps you see the pointlessness of sin and the shortness of life, and you live the rest of your life no longer for the human passions, recognizing this life is short, but instead for the will of God. And the question is, will we die to ourselves? In the midst of our affliction, in the midst of our pain and our suffering, will we take up our cross daily and will we follow him? What is our attitude going to be towards suffering? In Christ, it is renewed and changed from our default way. We talked a couple months ago what, what John Locke said that from the 1600s that every choice we make is based on an avoidance of pain and a desire for pleasure. The Christian life is going to kind of turn that upside down, isn't it? That we make choices where we take up our cross like Christ did to follow him. So may it be true that suffering turns us aside from sin. How will you respond to that suffering? We then come to verses 13 and 14. I've summarized it by saying there are hopelessly lost people who do not call to God in their suffering. This is a hard statement to understand and to believe. The godless in their heart cherish anger. Would say 1 John would say they hate their brother. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth, and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. That is a sobering reality. Now, truly, we're all sinners. Only by grace do we not say what the fool says in Psalm 14.1, that there is no God. But there are those who persist in saying there is no God. And they do not cry out for help when suffering comes. They do not cry out to God. They have been hardened by life. They have been hardened by suffering. And we need to be careful not to follow that path in our lives. They do not cry for help. I can't help but think of this as a description of those who are in hell, where there is gnashing of teeth. Because that's all they can do. They're not crying out for help. They're not sorry that they're in hell. They're raising both fists up at God, cursing him. And it's possible for people to act like that here on earth. And in the end of their life, whenever that is, here it says, in their youth, they die among the cult prostitutes. That's a grim reality. They die being poor, being destitute, being alone, not dying with family. They've shunned them all. I think a good example of this could be someone like Pharaoh. Think of Pharaoh in the last few months of his life. Ten plagues probably lasted about a year or so, dealing with Moses. He hardened his own heart. 
in the midst of all that suffering, surely as all the Egyptians are talking to him, pulling on him, his leader saying, man, let's give in. But he doesn't. He continues to harden his heart. Eventually, God hardens his own heart, gives him over to the evil of his own ways. And unfortunately, sometimes suffering can harden your heart. And so we need to deal with that. We need to go through that process of grief. If it's something that happened last week, or it's something that happened 50 years ago. But this verse is telling us that there are people who do not respond well to the suffering that happens in their lives. And it's a hard thing to put in print, there are hopelessly lost people. I want to mention two things, a couple things. First John 5 says there is a sin that leads to death, and I do not say you should pray for that. There's an easy way out of that to say, well, we're not going to pray for people to be saved who don't believe in being saved through Jesus Christ. I think that's not what that means. There are people who can run so far and so long away from God that they do not hear his voice. You cannot repent if you do not hear his voice. What does it say in Hebrews? Today, if you hear his voice, do not what? Harden your hearts as they did in the desert, in the wilderness. Now, let me say this, that you can repent. Can anybody repent of their sins? Absolutely. But not if they're not within the sound of God's voice. If they hear God's voice as you proclaim the gospel to them, even as they might remember it, or they read the word for themselves, can anybody repent? Yes. But if they're outside of hearing God's voice, you can't repent. You can run so far, so long, so hard away from God that you don't hear what? You don't hear his voice. It's one of the messages in Hebrews. It's scary to read the book of Hebrews sometimes. It's encouraging. There's great truths in there. There's a lot of warnings in there. And hell is a reality. But what is the fruit, though, of suffering? There's got to be some good in it, right? Verses 15 and 16. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction. I hope that jumps out to you, teaches you, and is encouraging to you. He delivers the affliction by their affliction. We'll explain that in a minute. He opens their ears by adversity. He also woos us out of distress, places us on a broad place where there is no cramping, where there is no narrowness, where there is no constricting. And what was set on your table was full of fatness. Well, how does God deliver us by affliction from affliction? First of all, we have to recognize that it's not mentioned in this passage. Jesus' affliction, his suffering is what has delivered us more than anything else. And that's the bigger picture. But this verse is just telling us that God has a design for pain and suffering, and that is to draw us unto himself. That is encouraging to me. Let me illustrate this with uh, two volunteers today. Can I get two volunteers, anybody of any age, just come on up here? You're going to help me have an illustration. Elliot, so glad to see you raise your hand. Come on up. Somebody else, come up here and join Elliot. That'll work. Come on up. Toby, right? Okay, Toby, you hold this box for me. All right. Oliver. Oliver. Sorry, thanks for speaking up. All right, Oliver. Elliot, I want you to hold that. It's heavy. Okay, good for you. All right, you guys just go ahead and walk to that door over there and come on back. Okay, walk to that door and come on back. All right, this, this illustrates different kinds of weaknesses, okay? Um, you wouldn't want to walk around in life with a different kind of weakness, whether it's a heavy weight that's small, but it's heavy, right? Or a box that's it's light, but it's pretty big, right? Imagine these guys living their lives for the next week, and they have to carry this for the next week no matter what. They can't take it off. 
Now that's kind of small. Elliot could probably fit it in his pocket, but it's heavy. It's probably really increased his heart rate. I picked it up and was like, my heart rate is increasing, right? I mean, tell this kid to sleep along, let along with a box in him, right? Or do everything else he has to do. Oliver is his kid's name, right? All right, you guys can set that down right there for us. Thank you very much for paying attention. I want to be clear, these, these examples aren't sin. They're weaknesses. Now, in our weaknesses, we can be prone to react with sin. Paul talked about this as a thorn in his flesh, didn't he? He prayed that it would be taken away, but it wasn't. Each of us has different kinds of weaknesses and limitations. Very limited. But the point I want to make, and him delivering the afflicted by their affliction, is that in picking up that weight that says 40 pounds on it, God is keeping you somehow from picking up a weight that's 80 pounds. And carrying this, this big box that doesn't weigh anything, but sure does get in the way, somehow, God is keeping you from something worse. He delivers the affliction, the afflicted, by their affliction. So in the midst of your weakness, you can trust God only by faith. I hope that jumps out to you like it did to me. I'm encouraged to know that. To hopefully not react to our own weaknesses with sin and destructive habits. And hopefully this is part of that grieving process as you go through suffering. And if you'll respond to it with open hands instead of a fist at God, or like the lost people do with two fists at God, he will open your ears to adversity. He will call you out of distress. Maybe you can come alongside these people and help them carry their weight and their burden. We read Psalm 119. Listen to two verses from Psalm 119, verses 67 and 71. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. I've heard people say that they're grateful for the cancer they got because they learn dot, dot, dot lessons. I want to be careful in saying that because I don't ever want to call something like cancer good. God brings good out of evil, as it says in Genesis 50, 20. So I don't want to say that suffering is good. I want to say God can bring good out of suffering. Okay? But that brings a crisis, and it brings pain in our lives. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. That is only a prayer that you can make by faith. But it's borne out. Look at the Ninevites. They responded to their crisis. They repented, though probably a generation later they didn't, didn't, didn't maintain itself. They were wiped out. Look historically at our own nation from 9-11. Church attendance soared after 9-11. People went through suffering and pain, and it checked their reality. They were drawn to see eternal things. God will then bring us to a broad place and not a narrow place. This is talking about a field and not a path, okay? Jesus said that the broad path is bad and the narrow path is good. Here, it's a field. It's a broad field. It's good. Where there's no cramping, meaning narrowness. You could also understand this as conviction of the Spirit leading to freedom. Conviction and sorrow with the Spirit leading to joy. Think of Psalm 23, very clearly alluded to here. 
gives us green pastures and sets a table before us in our enemies, in the midst of our enemies. Maybe the point of that suffering is to humble us. You carry these things around with you for the rest of your life and it'll humble you, or even for a period of time, and it will humble you. Why was Paul's thorn not removed to keep him humble? The very thing that Elihu starts to say in a few verses, introducing us to God's theme of he is great and we are not. One of the uh, first verses that I memorized as a Christian in seventh grade from a, a school teacher was 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has come upon you that isn't common to everybody else. But God is faithful, and when you are tempted, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, tempted or go through a trial, but he will provide a way out for you that you will be able to endure it. But listen to the verse before it. Therefore, that anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. God can help us, but we need to be not so confident that we can handle any situation. Boy, does God ever have a way of humbling us, doesn't he? You have rich men who get humbled in their finances. You have strong people humbled by their strength. You have wise men who are humbled sometimes by the words that they fumble upon. But each of us is humbled in different ways. That God would draw us near to himself and then, of course, keep us there. We finish up with the last three points that move pretty quickly. Verses 17 and 18 tell us, I've summarized it by saying, take the log out of your own eye. Verse 17 says, but you, Job, are full of judgment. You are preoccupied with it. You are thinking about the wicked, of judgment and justice. You're thinking about others instead of yourself. Beware lest wrath entice you to scoffing. And let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. That ransom was summarized well in the previous chapter where Job was tempted to sin. Job, don't give in to it. Learn from Moses that sin is great just for a season. But it's got such a hard bite in the end. It will be great, but it will not last long. Your flesh will be happy, but it will not be happy long. Don't give in to it, Job. Don't be so worried about others and what others are going through and comparing yourself to others' forms of suffering. Take the log out of your own eye. Boy, do we need that reprogramming regularly. As the scriptures tell us, why not rather be wronged? It is to your glory to overlook an offense. Only the love of Christ can make us love others and be humble. We're going to skip down to verse, to chapter 20, I'm sorry, verse 21. I've summarized the saying, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Take care, do not turn to iniquity. But this seems to be what Job has chosen in this moment. For this you have chosen rather than enduring affliction. Though Job will repent of it, the moment he has made a choice to speak out in his anger, even against God. And there's a warning here. Take care. Be careful. Watch yourself. But we are called to endure affliction 
even quietly. Now, we're not called to endure abuse or things that are illegal. We call the authority for those kinds of issues. There is a kind of affliction that we are called to actually endure. But too often, all we're concerned about is our own comfort. At the men's retreat last year, uh, one of the speakers talked about, are you more concerned with your happiness or your holiness? Now, let me be clear, those two are not not necessarily conflicting. If you want happiness, then pursue holiness. I want you to listen to a quote from uh, a man known throughout history as Gregory the Great from about 600 AD. He was a man that did much good for the church. He says about Job, For suffering is here on earth the portion of the elect, so they may be trained for the rewards of their heavenly inheritance. It is our portion to receive stripes here, for whom an eternity of joy is reserved. If Christ receives stripes, shouldn't we be willing to endure the same? Persecution will certainly come. Pain is promised. Let me read it one more time. Suffering is here the portion of the elect, so they may be trained for the rewards of their heavenly inheritance. It is our portion to receive stripes here on earth, for whom an eternity of joy is reserved. Will we take up our cross and follow Christ? We do not need to choose to rebel against God. Finally, we come to verses 22 to 23, which I believe asks this question for each and every one of us. Who is your guide through your pain? Verses 22 and 23 say, Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, what have you done? Will we behold God's presence? Psalm 104 talks about pursuing God's presence continually. He is powerful. He is an active judge. And I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto the salvation of everyone who believes. It goes on to say it is from faith to faith, that power of the gospel, from the first moment you have faith to the last moment you have faith. That power of the gospel, not only for the forgiveness of sins, but enabling you to stay on that righteous place and to hear God's voice and to be called out to a broad path on green pastures. And who is a teacher like him? Is he your guide through your pain? Do you open up the Psalms and cry out to God so that he can turn this fist that happens surely every week in our lives as our hearts start to harden towards God and towards those around us to two open hands of worship towards him, of surrendering to him, of recognizing that he has prescribed for us how to live. And then we do not say to him, what have you done? No one can hold back God's hand or say to him, what have you done? According to Daniel 4.35. So in this process of your own grief and your own pain, 
It's not something we want to hang out with forever. But there are occasions when we need to visit and grieve and process that suffering. And may God be each and every one of our guides that we would surrender. You don't have a choice but to surrender. (laughs) It doesn't go well for us when we rebel against him. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this particular word from this particular chapter for this particular day. We pray, God, that you would guide each and every one of us, that you would be our teacher. Jesus, as you are the master teacher, Spirit, as you are our primary teacher, revealing to us the words of the master teacher who tells us to take the log out of our own eye. May we do that. May we take up our cross daily. May we follow you. And may your name be hallowed in each and every one of our lives, even as we carry our different weaknesses, as we each suffer. May we know that we don't suffer alone, that you are with us, that there are those around us who can help us go through this process of grief and of suffering. May we do it well, speaking truth at the appropriate time. In your name we pray, amen.